0: Welcome to episode 6 of the Paradigm Shift podcast. In this episode, we talk to Wusi Gumede, a professor at the University of South Africa, a published author, and a former advisor to the Tabombegi presidency. In this episode, we briefly look at the South African landscape of education during COVID-19 and beyond. Okay, so your work would have me describing you as a thorough academic and a critical thinker focused on socioeconomic transformation in south africa and africa at large would you describe yourself the same way and if yes could you further elaborate on the work that you do
1: hi um well i suppose i've always been passionate um, about research uh, maybe the correct term actually is committed. So I've always been committed to research and the academic sector. Um, the journey actually starts around two nineteen ninety six. Um, so we're in the two thousands now. So try and think back, but it, you know, in nineteen ninety six, um, there used to be competitions for honor students in economics um, for the budget. So we write essays, um, and then you know, the best essay gets you know, will, will be chosen uh, from each of the institutions across, you know, the country. And then we'll then come in, compete, you know, people who are these essays. um will then, you know, first travel to uh, to listen to the budget speech at the National Assembly in Cape Town. And then, you know, have kind of interviews um, and debates amongst, um, you know, ourselves as participants. And, and And that, in a sense, kind of cemented my interest in research very early. Um, as you can imagine, a 21-year-old, uh, it can be quite exciting, you know, interacting uh, with other, you know,
0: essayists, if I can use that term, those who are treating those essays uh,
1: from the different universities. And incidentally, by the way, the person, um, the young man at that point in time who won um, that competition that year um, went on to the University of Cambridge, uh, and, and I happened to stay in the same room with him, so we had many discussions for those couple of days that we were all in Cape Town. So in a sense, you know, that was really the beginning of my interest in recession, you know, became hopeful to become an academic at some point. And in 1998, when I was doing my master's degree, and this was also in economics, my paper was accepted in a conference which was in Johannesburg. Uh, by the way, I-, I used to be at the Estuar University of devon Roseville uh, in Devon. So we then came to Jobek uh, with my supervisor and I presented this paper. Uh, which actually earned me a job um, at the National Institute of Economic Policy, uh, which was based in Johannesburg. So that further cemented, you know, further entrenched my interest in research, working in this institute, which, you know, provided a lot of us with exposure to government, um, and a lot of us ended up going to government. Some people became very senior as directors general uh, and so forth. Um, so, so that in a sense, there've been all these um, events, if I can use that term, or opportunities uh, that that have always enhanced my interest in research and hoping to be an academic. Of course, then I stayed in government for a very long time um, after the National Institute of Economic Policy, ended up working in the Department of t- Trading Industry, uh, and, and the work there um, involved me with the National with what later became the New Partnership uh, for Africa's Development. NEPAD, and and that led me to joining the presidency, Um, and and I worked there in the presidency in various capacities. Uh, Lastly, uh, though, in research and analytical functions, or those functions that were related to research and analysis, uh, of course, there was admin um, and management, you know, as you move up um, in ranks in governments, you end up taking up a lot of admin and management. And I stayed, of course, in government until 2009, and then fully became an academic again afterwards.
0: Okay. And so now you're a professor.
1: Yes, I am. I've been for, well, <laughs> I think since 2010. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, since 2010, actually.
0: So basically you've had many roles in education. So you've been a student, you've been a teacher, you've been a supervisor and a head of an institute. Which of these roles have been most valuable to you and why? Um, most valuable in the sense that they impacted you in how you approach education and the education system at large?
1: Well, I've found um, supervising masters and especially doctoral students, um, as well as mentoring younger researchers, you know, mentoring emerging scholars, I found that very fulfilling. Um, Of course, I do find writing and editing also very fulfilling um, with its own ups and downs, you know, um, very long hours and uh, all that comes with it. Uh, But but working with a student um, right from the conception, you know, of the research problem, uh, unpacking the problematic, dealing with hypotheses, um, the methodologies and so forth, uh, to the finalization of the dissertation or the thesis, uh, although very demanding, uh, is rewarding in many ways. uh, And and I found that aspect of academic life also intellectually stimulating um, and then collaborating with the students, you know, whilst they're doing that doctoral studies in particular, or, you know, afterwards, um, you know, very rewarding in a sense. Uh, but I must say that, um, <clears throat> you know, having been the head of the Tarbonbeg African Leadership Institute um, was very important to me, uh, largely because I felt I was, you know, contributing to the legacy of the former president, uh, for President Tarbonbeg, uh, that I'd been working with, you know, since 2001 um, in government. And and so there's a chance to contribute in his legacy, whilst at the same time uh, pursuing you know the academic project.
0: Mm-hmm. So with your background, I suppose in traditional education, so supervising, being a professor and mentoring, how does that impact what is currently happening in the world? So with COVID nineteen and remote learning. Um, how does that change for you? And how does that force you in a way to rethink this traditional idea of supervising and being a professor and being a teacher?
1: Um, I suppose, I mean, it, it helped um, to come late, relatively late in the academic sector. So although I was there doing my master's and I taught us, you know, doing the master's, you know, and the PhD. Uh, but you know mostly having been in government uh, dealing with policy related work um, it helped coming into the academic sector late that you know i've been able to in a sense experiment with the various learning management systems uh, and the different approaches to learning so you know as someone who comes a bit late you know you have to learn about the blackboard how it works Moodle. Uh, you have to learn about and edulink is a whole range of approaches for remote-based learning, but also for contact teaching, um, you know different approaches, particularly the blended approach, where you know you combine both online uh, lecturing with physically with kind of, sort of class-based methods. So I, I do think that. Um, that, that seems to be working. Uh, of course, one can always improve. Um, for supervision, it's relatively easier because, you, you know, you discuss with students wherever they are, over the phone, um, in Skype. Um, so there are different modalities, actually, t- to always engage uh, with a student when, you know, it's a master's or doctoral student. I mean, I've supervised students across the African continent, uh, predominantly in Ethiopia. A um, number of doctoral students that I graduate there, but, you know, students in Ghana, Kenya, you name it. Um and, and you know, we're able to work together, although we're not in the same setting. So I think in a way it's already been working even here in South Africa. You know, you'll have students you know that are based in other provinces, uh, but you have to find a way to to engage with them. But I think it's relatively more manageable at a master's and doctoral level because you know, you interact frequently, in something you comment, uh, you talk over the phone or Skype and so on and so forth.
0: Okay, so this change hasn't affected you in any significant way specifically in in regard to supervising I suppose
1: yes but for the teaching of course you know one is to improve right so for some mm-hmm. origin I think it hasn't really changed much I mean it, it wouldn't I like, suppose change much because uh, of the nature of
0: you're already online
1: people, right of yeah. postgraduate training particularly like the research-based uh, postgraduate degrees postgraduate degrees um but for you know conduct uh, what has been traditionally conduct uh, teaching um, or even the blended approach uh, one needs to improve so here at UNISA for instance we use my UNISA um, and, and that in itself uh, arguably needs to improve um, so that there can be better mm-hmm. interaction uh, between you know the lecturer and the student and, and we need more I'll argue open source, based um, learning management system, um, so, so that can be widely used and be more accessible. But of course, there'll be other issues there the access to data and the cost of data.
0: So in light of this, there's different education systems all over the world. Could you briefly paint a picture of what your experience has been in South Africa from your different roles? of higher education
1: well well as you rightly say i'll limit myself to south africa though of course i've spent time in universities in britain uh, and america in particular um for my postdoctoral training and also you know partly teaching in some of those um parts of the world but but here in south africa it seems to me that you know the fundamental challenge just like we have this challenge across you know various sectors in our society is a challenge of leadership um i just sense you know i've been sensing this in the past 10 years that you know there's a bit of a, compl- a challenge around you know thought leadership um that some of our administrators and leaders in the universities uh, don't fully appreciate what is it that we're really dealing with um in the academic sector and how to improve it uh, but but also that challenge is not only just in the education sector education uh, sector uh, with administrators and the leaders or the managers there, but also in our government, um, there hasn't really been robust leadership uh, by our government of the higher education sector. Uh, that seems to be changing, right? So lately we see these many <laughs> reviews, uh, lots of task teams uh, to review this and that that the relevant minister you know, in government is setting up. So one should be helpful, this should help. But there are fundamental questions, of course, that we need to address when it comes to the transformation of the higher education sector. And some big questions, right, that we need to raise about ourselves as academics and administrators in the sector. Um, so I'm doing some work on this so I can get carried away easily. But but it would be good for me to talk once, you know, i finish finished um, what I'm writing up on this. But, it, you know, it does seem to me that, we need to tackle the questions about the quality of academics, um, you know, whether is it is it good enough. Um, so it's one thing to see the shift, you know, having more Africans uh, as academics relative to a white population group or, you know, having more females relative to males uh, from a gender perspective. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, are we doing what we're supposed to do as academics? Um, you know, this question for me, I don't think we've answered, and we'll have to confront uh, openly. Uh, similarly, you know whether the landscape of our education sector is the correct one. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if this you know our landscape is that you have co- so-called comprehensive universities, um, you have the university of technology, uh, yeah. so-called traditional university. And the question is whether is that a correct uh, way. You know, why can't we? I'm asking a question. I'm trying to answer in this paper that I'm writing. Why can't we have all our universities as comprehensive universities, right? And of course, in short, okay. there is another layer that deals with skilling, upskilling uh, younger people. Which you know, of course, as we know that there's a challenge of unemployment. Um, there's yeah. a, something has to be done there around skills, because universities don't give you, um, you know, the kind of the technical know-how, or doesn't, you know, they don't give enough of that uh, for the labour market, particularly in the context of South Africa.
0: Okay, when you say comprehensive universities. What do you mean?
1: Well, so, so you have universities here in South Africa um, that provide all types um, of kerukura, um, mm-hmm. theoretical, uh, technical, uh, skill intensive, and so forth. Um, These can also involve, you know, online distance learning um, and so forth. Whereas others are, are said to be narrowly focusing on technical skills. Um, the so-called universities of technology, um, and 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 you know, I'm just wondering if shouldn't we actually be having all our universities as comprehensive universities, right? Dealing with all the necessary um, interventions uh, to, to ensuring that a graduate, in a sense, is complete. Um, when someone you know finishes in the university, it's not like they only have theory, just as traditional universities are meant to or at least on paper that the so-called traditional universities provide theory or, or it's mm-hmm. a political training so so this question that i'm trying to address um in this paper well actually it's, a, it's it's a chapter um that i'm contributing in a new book on higher education that you know tries to wrestle with these questions um and these reviews that you know are now taking place uh, you know in the higher education sector um should help address some of these issues and i'm looking into those of course but you know also just dealing with the complex questions about whether have we had the correct transformation are the numbers that we see sufficient um is it enough just to see black or african you know administrators in the universities what are they really doing uh, you know are the academics you know doing the right things are Providing the right curricula, the right training, and so forth. But you know, yeah. exciting things too happening in our universities. So I shouldn't sound um, <laughs> negative. I mean, you know, the the initiatives around decolonization uh, and or Africanization of curricula. Uh, I think this this is a very important. It's a very positive development uh, that we see in our universities, um, and 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 it's something that you know needs to be encouraged. Of
0: absolutely, but I mean. The reality is that we do have a lot of challenges in South Africa in a lot of areas. But yes, you are right. There are a lot of good things happening as well. What do you think you're talking about, like um, producing a complete graduate? What are the specific things that you think that higher education and universities in particular are lacking in producing a complete graduate in terms of skills? Because it's not, as you said, it's not sufficient to just have theoretical background on a degree. When you get into the workforce, you're required so much more. You're required to be able to engage with a team. You should be able to interact on a very professional level. That requires emotional intelligence and so forth. What else should we be teaching in university? in terms of creating the complete graduate. So they do walk into the workforce, not feeling like there's a significant gap with what they know and what they can contribute into the workspace.
1: Uh, I suppose, I mean, the challenge is not only the universities, um, arguably. So the challenge starts much earlier. Um, in, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, is the entire education system. Um, that we need to improve. So, you know, with a high rate of dropouts, you know, before metric, um, which really, you know, cause a lot of problems because then you have many young people that are, you know, semi-educated, you could say, or semi-skilled or unskilled. Uh, And and we do know that interventions around the technical and vocational education and training institutions have not really delivered the expected results. Uh, And also, you know, young people avoid these institutions um, they don't see the students, you know, helping them. And, and then you have a challenge with um, graduates who, who get to tertiary, graduates who complete metric and get invested, you know, or use you know, for technology or so forth, and trends. Um, the quality of these students is also a big challenge uh, in itself. So, so, so there are many interventions that we need. Um, in a sense, we need to start very early. Um, you know, dealing with the entire education system. Um, you know, I've argued that some of these challenges are policy related and that government you know needs to improve uh, policies around the education sector, but you know there's a whole range of issues that need to address, um, you know the teachers themselves, the environment, I mean there's a whole range of things. Um, you can think about trade unions or organized labor in the education sector. So there are a lot of these challenges you know in the education sector. And it may very well be that um, there needs to be a conversation about how to improve that, um, you know, not just the higher education system alone, uh, but how do you start very early in improving the education sector as a whole and what needs to be done, what kind of partnerships are necessary um, between government, the education sector, uh, the organized labor in the education sector, uh, the role of parents. I mean, you can, you know, go on and on the role of, you know, governing um, both the yeah, so that we've got this system of um, governing bodies. So, so uh, I suppose the universities may be trying their best, um, in a sense. But you know, you need a an overarching, arguably, you need a, a cross cutting intervention in the entire education. Mm-hmm. For the university in particular, um, my sense is that we need to improve as academics, or we need to improve academics themselves. I mean, this is going to be very critical. Uh, that the right academics, academics who who understand what they are teaching, who, who who are properly trained uh, to teach to lecture they lecture. Um, the curricula can always be improved, uh, but I, did think, I do think that you know some of the fundamental challenges in the education sector, the higher education sector, largely have to do with you know, the nature of academics and, and the administrators um, in our universities.
0: Fair enough. Um, I'd like to go back to this idea of, of blended learning, which is pretty much, I suppose, is what we're going into as the world. Um, do you see that happening in South Africa at the rate at which the rest of the world is trying to incorporate it as a result of the pandemic? I mean, considering our infrastructural challenges that we might have in more remote areas in South Africa, and then just data and the access to that.
1: Indeed, it's a big challenge. Um, But that's where the future is, right? That's where the future is going to be. So so we're going to have to make it work. Um, Fortunately, there's been some work going on into this. So, you know, many universities... They use the blended approach, um, so 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 that helps. I suppose we need to improve more on the e-learning component uh, of that blended of that blended approach. We need to improve more the online part of it, um, and 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 making sure that the various learning management systems you know could be Blackboard, like you know, Sir so John's back uh, used to use when when I was there, or my Unisa in the context of Unisa now. Or Moodle, as many other universities use, that you, you know these um, learning management systems can function better. Um, there should be a way for the learning management system to work with far less data, um, you know, than being data intensive and very costly. So I think it's in the design, technical design of the systems. But I, I do think also that we need more open source type of Learning management systems. So, Nero you know, is experimenting with this, uh, or it's been going on there. So, it model, for instance, uh, the most recent one that I've, you know, come across, and uh, I'm learning about this as we go forward here in South Africa and for Unisa in particular, <clears throat> whether you know we can learn from those. So, technologies are improving, uh, and increasingly you know, there are more open source software um, content and technologies. And we must address this issue of access to data and the cost of data, so that no matter where you are, you should be able to access learning management system in your phone. Um, you, you know, as a student, you know it doesn't have to be an iPad or a computer, and you must be able to engage also with other students. I mean, this is going to be probably the most important issue um, in the, mm-hmm. the classroom-based approach it's easier to have group discussions and group discussions are very useful group, you know, assignments or assessments. Uh, And it's very difficult if you do this online. And and it's important that, you know, whatever learning management systems we use uh, are able to, you know, allow learners to do group work, but also to learn from each other. But of course, you need to monitor this because, you know, youngsters can use um, these systems wrongly. Uh, for, for for other things, uh, we've had some strange cases at where a student will post something you know inappropriate in the site. And so yeah. you know it, it kind of adds um, an added responsibility on the facilitator, uh, on the lecturer, um, to monitor okay. each uh, students better. I mean, going forward, in mean, the context of COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, given that we are in it for for a long time, given you know all the estimations indicating you know we're gonna be in it for a very long time. <clears throat> remote learning is is a way to go. Remote learning is a way to go. Remote teaching too, sorry, is a way to go. But you mm-hmm. also have to ensure that academics um, you know, are upskilled uh, to be able to do this better.
0: Do you think that us moving towards more remote learning also just creates more responsibility for the student to, well, for them to take more responsibility in how they learn and what they're learning? And is wouldn't that be beneficial in terms of just the education system at large so teachers professors and so forth have more clearer understanding of what people are wanting to learn um, students specifically obviously um, and generally where to take the education system for our economy for jobs and for the further integration, into the rest of the world as we are in South Africa, or as we're trying to do.
1: Yes, I mean, well, the the added responsibility is both on the side of the lecturer um, Mm -hmm. and the student. Um, It shouldn't be a bad thing in my view. I think it's fine. It just means that lecturers, you know, have to really take their work more seriously. Um, Research more, provide more resources um, and materials for students. Uh, but also, you know, as you say, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more work for students um, than it's been in the past. Um, the challenge we face, I mean, here in South Africa, is that for, for many students, the parents are not able to play a role um, in their education, particularly higher education, because, you know, our parents, um, I mean, most of us, um, you know, our parents didn't have education, Um and, and therefore, yeah. you know, they're unable to play the role, which should be really critical. Um, how can a parent, in an instance of this remote learning, uh, ensure that, you know, the child is, is not doing wrong things in the computer or the phone, <laughs> um, you know, doing schoolwork? Um, but also, you know, if it's possible to help uh, with assessments, um, with providing resources or accessing the resources. I suppose, I mean, there's a challenge we'll have to address, uh, like many other challenges because, I mean, inevitably, we're moving to this fourth industrial revolution that everyone's talking about, um, and the kind of the skills that are going to matter, we're told, uh, technical related skills. Education must move into that direction. I mean, the whole world, I mean, the global economy, has been moving in that direction until, you know, of course, getting interrupted by COVID-19. But I don't think COVID-19 will stop that. It may exacerbate it, actually. The economy
0: yeah become more
1: digitized.
0: Absolutely. So we can't talk about education in South Africa and not talk about the high youth unemployment, the wage gaps and the skills shortage. How do you think we can beg to restructure the economy of education? I think you've touched on it already. but Further. So, to fill these skills gaps, to decrease youth unemployment, and just to change the trajectory of where we are, where we are going with regard to youth unemployment and just education in South Africa?
1: It's an extremely important question. I mean, you know, and it's a difficult one, of course. You know, there are practical interventions that government should be implementing, should have been implementing to deal with unemployment in general. Uh, it's a very big problem for us, it's been for a very long time and new unemployment in particular. Um, Of course, I mean, the the unemployment challenge is getting intensified uh, due to COVID-19. So we do need to address some of the very practical issues. One of them I spoke about earlier when I was talking about the technical and vocational education training institutions, um, that we need to improve these institutions in South Africa so that those that, you know, for whatever reason, and some of the reasons are really sound, uh, have not been able to complete metric. Uh, that does a ch- second chance uh, for them. This is extremely uh, important that there's some kind of a chance for those that could not finish matric, um, you know, some kind of skilling that needs to take place in that. Secondly, the tertiary education sector, the higher education sector itself, is it, you know, the field uh, in which you graduate matters a lot, right? I mean, the, the qualification mm-hmm. that you get um, is critical. So we have, unfortunately, many young people who have qualifications from education institutions that are finding hard to get employment um because you know the economy is not absorbing um those particular fields uh, except you know fields such as financial and services sector it and mm-hmm. so, so so there's something that needs to be done uh, around that number three a very fundamental issue for me is the economy itself um that you know we've had this challenge that our economy here in south africa has not been performing well for a very long time yeah. it's been worsening Um, you know, in the past 10 years or so. uh, And of course, now it's really bad. And and it's going to, you know, we're trying our best, of course. Those of us who are involved in advising government to get the economy back on track. Uh, But we do know that COVID-19 has impacted and is going to impact the economy significantly for a very long time. But you also have these inefficiencies in the government solutions. So we've got government solutions that are supposed to deal with youth unemployment, Uh, small business development, you know, and so forth. And the inefficiencies in these institutions compound uh, the youth unemployment, you know, challenge or the unemployment problem uh, generally. Um, So those need to be, you know, improved. I mean, these three particular areas I'm highlighting. Uh, And then we do need to think more. I mean, this has been my argument for a while now that we need to think more about the kind of an economy uh, that can make use Of the skills that we have, we need to think about whether is there no way that we can make use of our youth uh, as semi-skilled and to some extent unskilled, while benefiting them, Uh, because we do know that it takes a long time to upskill, and and changes happen so fast. So you know, we may be thinking, as it's happened ten years or so ago, that you we need to direct youth into this direction, these particular skills. And then you know the World Economic Forum comes um, out 10 years later and says, no, no, those are the wrong skills, actually the correct skills going forward are these ones. So, so given that it takes a very long time uh, to upskill the youth, we need to be really thinking hard about how do we get an economy to benefit, to, I mean, to, to make use of the skills that we have, the youth that we have, and benefiting the youth. And then, of course, one of such interventions um, is the Youth Wage Subsidy Programme having employment incentive schemes um these these are so-called active labor market interventions that that must be pursued more vigorously um or should be strengthened uh, in government so that we can address the challenge of youth unemployment it's going to take a while but but i do think for instance that we should be able to reduce youth unemployment for certain fields of study so it's strange for me that you have you know many graduates in engineering, um, in commerce, and so forth, that are not finding jobs. I just think there's something going wrong uh, in the economy uh, that that maybe we need to be thinking a bit more about, uh, tweaking the economy to ensure that we can at least make use of these skills, these qualifications, or these youth. And the world economy itself is changing very fast. Um, COVID-19 has you know interrupted it, but I think it may get even more g- digitized. Um, going forward and, and and the skills that we're told are going to matter most are those that are technically related skills. Um and, yeah. and therefore, you know, given the context of the fourth industrial revolution, that this is one of the issues that needs to be addressed by the education sector and government and a lot of institutions in government. But fundamentally for me, it's it's about, you know, the kind of the economy um that we have whether we can't tweak, you know, the economy to make better use of the youth and their skills, however insufficient those skills, um, you know, while benefiting uh, the youth. So it's really problematic that you have so many young people with qualifications uh, but not employed. So something, you know, something urgent needs to be done, something should have been done. Uh, to address this, um, you know, it's not good for our society. It's not good for any society to have this kind of a challenge. Uh, and and of course, it takes a long time uh, to upskill. So if we say we're going to take youngsters and upskill them, that's still taking a long a long time. So we do need to think about whether we can tweak our economy. Um, you know, to make better use of our youth. Um, we know the character of our economy any structure that needs to be changed. But I suppose in the meantime, we can try and make sure that, you know, more young people uh, are in the employment, something about the labor market, right? Uh, the reforms that need to take place in the labor market. And and, and we need to make sure that um, interventions uh, such as the youth wage subsidy uh, or employment incentive schemes, um, these fall in the category of active labor market interventions that, you know, are improved or pursued um, Vigorously uh, or strengthened, yeah. you know, because you do need to intervene more directly uh, to ensure that you address the youth unemployment, particularly, you know, graduates. It seems to me that a graduate from commerce or um, engineering sciences should have a job. I mean, it's, it's very upsetting that they, they they don't have jobs. Um, big issue, really. There is also about the private sector. Um, we normally blame government, and we must because government is supposed to lead. Uh, but uh, you know, government has not been playing its role um, in upskilling young people. I mean, you can take a commerce graduate in any company uh, to do something, mm-hmm. even if it means starting off as a clerk. Um, but you, but you can't have someone who studied auditing and they can't find a job. There should be a way that those people can work on something because part of the issues is that the labour market needs experience and and we don't need we don't give sorry we don't give uh, young people experience uh, even if they have the correct qualifications so you know both government and the private sector uh, well
0: organized labor too uh, need to come together to address uh, this challenge yeah i mean i suppose i'm thinking about now just the general perspective from different places so i've been speaking to a lot of educators professors or people in the labor market of education in some shape or form mm-hmm. from a European Northern Hemisphere perspective. And it's good to have a very different landscape in terms of how education can shift and how it should be shifting mm-hmm. from the Southern Hemisphere, South Africa to be specific. And it's very different. The the challenges, I mean, are obviously greater in the mm-hmm. Southern Hemisphere. Um, In terms of what we're trying to achieve and where we're trying to go with regard to the fourth industrial revolution and the global economy at large. Um, It's a lot easier in terms of shifting education systems in the Northern Hemisphere because, you know, the challenges are not the same. They don't have infrastructural problems or economies that haven't been growing for as long as a period as South Africa and so forth. So as much as I would like to be like, oh, Let's go South Africa. Come on, we're lagging behind. Let's just move and change and shift quickly. It's a lot harder. And there's a lot more to think about in terms of just creating the kind of education system that meets what economy we have and what economy we're trying to build. Um, It's going to take a much longer time, even with the pandemic sort of forcing our hand.
1: We need to be addressing a question about what roles are all the different partners playing um, uh, Because, you know, if South Africa doesn't succeed, we're all affected. All the sectors uh, get affected, including the private sector. And therefore, it's important, Absolutely. you know, they're effective, not just partnerships, effective partnerships uh, to address the challenges uh, that we face. But also government needs to lead. Uh, there needs to be consequences, instances. I mean, I was talking about for instance. <laughs> inefficiencies in government you know there need to be there need to be consequences uh, for those uh, corruption there must be consequences for those um in our very own sp- sector your you know, own very s- space in the higher education sector um where they substandard performance there must be consequences and that should be across uh, society if we are serious about taking our society forward
0: absolutely well thank you for your time um this was very informative I think we could continue this conversation in another podcast on a different topic thank you for your time Prof thank you for the opportunity I hope you enjoyed this episode and please check out his 14th book titled Post Apartheid South Africa Economic and Social Inclusion it's coming out in November you can also go to his website to read more of the work that he has done